So as Marshall said, my name is Mac Holt, and I am the youth pastor here at TCPC, and it is really good to be with you all this first Sunday of Advent. So I went back and I listened to how Marshall introduced this series that you guys are in, and I loved what he said. He said that you are zooming in on the person of Jesus to see in greater depth, in greater detail, the character of God. All these big, grand truths about who God is are fleshed out in the person of Jesus Christ. If you want to know what God is like, the cosmic king of the whole universe, you look at Jesus Christ. And I love that. And so that's what we're going to see in our text this evening. Matthew 21, 12 through 17, we're going to see a very interesting picture of Jesus. You can turn with me, or I guess it's up on the screen. So this is Matthew 21, 12 through 17. And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all who sold and bought in the temple. And he overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who sold pigeons. He said to them, it is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer, but you make it a den of robbers. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. And they said to him, do you hear what these are saying? And Jesus said to them, yes, have you never read? Out of the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have prepared praise. And leaving them, he went out of the city to Bethany and lodged there. Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for Hope Presbyterian Church and for Marshall and for all of these people here. Lord, you have promised that you would meet us when we gather together. And so, Father, I ask that you would indeed speak to us in your word this evening. Father, would uh, please do not let me or my words stand in the way of your communicating your truths to your people who you love. Challenge us where we need to be challenged. Convict us where we need to be convicted. And Lord, comfort us where we need to be comforted. All this we ask in your name. Amen. So, uh, I was driving home from a trip uh, a few years ago, and it was very late at night, maybe early in the morning, and I am blaring hits from the early 2000s, uh, chugging coffee, binging podcasts, doing whatever I can do to stay awake. And I'll be honest with you, it wasn't working that well, and I start drifting off to sleep. Not the right time to be driving. I was still trying to get home. So anyway, uh, I'm coming up over the crest of a hill, and as I'm about 90% of the way up it, all of a sudden, at the top of the hill, I see this massive explosion of light. I crest the hill, and I see a semi-truck coming the opposite direction, and it's burst, the, like the motor has burst into flames. And so the driver, he's guiding it off the highway, and he stops, and I stop, and he's fine. Uh, he took care of it. But this massive explosion, as I'm drifting asleep, it shocked me. It snapped my senses back into gear, and it rid me of all sleepiness. Now, this season of Advent that we're currently in, it's a time when Christians practice waiting. Yes, we are waiting for Christmas, this time when we look back at the fact that the God of the universe really did become a human being in Christ Jesus. But we're also practicing the greater Christian discipline of waiting, 
We are in a season of waiting between Christ's having come and the fact that he will come again. We are a people who wait. We're awaiting our king's return when all the bad things will come untrue, as my son's storybook Bible puts it. The problem is, as we all know, waiting is really hard, especially when you live in a broken and frustrating world like the one we find ourselves in. And so to escape this brokenness and this frustration and to dull the passions that we have inside of us, we turn to all sorts of things for distraction and for comfort to make the waiting easier. And in the same way that that truck's explosion shocked me back into consciousness, our text this morning or this evening shocks us with who God is in the person of Christ. This brilliant display of Christ's passion in his anger is meant to shock and wake us up to his purposes and his call on our lives. And so to see that this evening, we're going to look at Christ's anger in three points. We're going to see the reality of Christ's anger, the reason for his anger, and the result of his anger. So first, let's look at the reality of Christ's anger. Now, when we speak of Jesus, we rarely mention the reality of his anger. Some of this reluctance is probably due to the fact that we're in a, we're in a culture that loves the idea of a loving God, but we really struggle with a God who would get angry. We love the idea of tolerance and accepting God who welcomes us with open arms at all times, but to say that Jesus gets angry, we shy away from this. We shy away from discussing God's wrath or his anger. And then maybe we in the church, we become so accustomed to Christ's kindness that we grow uncomfortable with these displays of anger. So what do we do with a passage like the one that's before us tonight? Or the other times throughout the Gospels when Jesus gets angry? What do we do with that? What does this say about our God? Whether it's the Jews choosing ritual over engaging human suffering, or uh, his disciples keeping children from coming to him, Jesus at times gets very angry. But here's the thing, Christ's anger is never an end in and of itself. So you guys are in this series on the attributes of God in 3D, in the person and work of Christ. And it would be wrong to speak of this display of anger as if anger was an attribute of who God is. Indeed, in Exodus 34, 6, Moses asked God to reveal to him God's glory. And God shows himself to Moses and proclaims this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness. But even though God is slow to anger, he still gets angry. Why? It's precisely because God is a God of steadfast love that he gets angry. You can't have a compassionate and loving Jesus without him also having real anger. B.B. Warfield explains it this way, it is impossible for a moral being to stand in the presence of perceived wrong, indifferent and unmoved. So what Warfield is saying is that Christ would literally be a contradiction if he did not get angry. A compassionless and unloving Christ would never get angry at the injustices around him. Compassion and anger rise together in the soul of our Savior. Christ's love begets his anger. 
Dane Ortland illustrates it this way. It's the father who loves his daughter the most, whose anger arises most fiercely if she is mistreated. And we know this to be true even in the most trivial of things. How do I know this? Because between the hours of 12 and 2.30 yesterday on Saturday, you'd have thought I was a lunatic if you walked by my back door because I was seated on my uh, easy chair talking loudly and usually very angrily at a television screen. Who does this? Even more importantly, who yells at 19, 20-year-old young men as they're trying to put a ball through a metal cylinder? I do. Why? Because I love UK basketball. And so my love for UK basketball begets my anger when they don't play well, when refs make bad calls, when we come back from 24 down and lose by one. My love for UK basketball begets my anger. Now, this is obviously trivial, but the principle stands. Think about those things that you love. When they are threatened, do you not get angry? Christ's anger is born from his love, his love for his own glory and his love for his people. And when you threaten one or both of those things, Christ gets angry. And both of these things that he loves, his own glory and his people, are threatened in our passage tonight. And Christ comes undone. Let's turn there now. Let's look at the reason for Christ's anger. We've seen that the real Jesus has real anger. Let's look at what causes him to get angry. Some of us here may have no trouble believing that Christ gets angry. Whether you grew up with parents who were excessively angry, or you grew up with a religion that emphasized God's anger at you to the exclusion of his love, maybe you can't escape feeling Christ's anger. But we need to look at where Christ's anger is actually directed in our passage tonight. To understand why Jesus is so angry here, we have to do a little bit of background work about the significance of the temple, this place that he finds himself. God, way back in Genesis, uh, this was in brief recited by what Marshall was talking about with the covenant baptism of Winslow, but God, way back in Genesis, chooses Abraham, this old childless man, and he says, you're going to be my person. And I'm going to take you and all your descendants. I'm going to make you a nation. And that's what happens. Abraham has children. They end up in in Egypt. They uh, proliferate. There's tons of them. They're a nation. They're enslaved. Moses leads them out. They're formed into a nation. But God continually repeats this refrain when talking to his people about his blessing them. He continually says, Through you, all the peoples of the earth will be blessed. Israel was not merely the recipient of God's steadfast love and faithfulness. They were called to be the agent, the herald, the messengers of God's steadfast love and faithfulness to the whole world, everyone around them. Israel existed for the glory of God and the good of the world around them. And this is so important to God that he literally bakes it into the design of the temple where he wants them to worship him. He bakes it into the design of his own temple. This building, this place where God's people would come and meet with him and pray and offer sacrifices and all these things, the biggest part of the whole thing wasn't even for the Israelites. It wasn't for the Jews. It was called the court of the Gentiles. It was for foreigners, people who were outside of God's kingdom to come in, see who this God was, and worship him. 
The temple was not for Israel primarily. It was for the glory of God and the good of the nations. And this temple plan is nothing but a microcosm illustrating God's plan for the spread of his glory throughout all of creation. Back in April when the lockdown was in full swing, I watched a lot of movies, and the best of which was a movie called A Hidden Life by Terrence Malick. Can't recommend it highly enough. It's this intensely beautiful movie of a conscientious, conscientious objector uh, to the Germans. And it's filmed in Austria and it's beautiful. And I finished the movie with my wife around midnight because it's super long. And I couldn't stop talking and thinking and listening to this movie and going back and rewatching scenes. And I keep talking to Jess about it. And finally she's like, Mac, I'm going to bed. But I'm sitting on the couch and I've got like this frenetic energy after having seen this amazing, amazing movie. So what do I do? I pull out my phone and I just start going through and texting everyone, you've got to see this movie now. What am I doing? I'm proclaiming the glory of this movie to the world around me. And we do this with everything that we love. C.S. Lewis says this, we delight to praise what we enjoy because the praise not merely expresses but completes the enjoyment. It is its appointed consummation. It's not out of compliment that lovers keep on telling one another how beautiful they are. The delight is incomplete until expressed. This is what Israel was meant to do. Enjoy God. Enjoy his blessings, his salvation, his love, his care, and then tell everyone about it. The whole world was to come to know the goodness, the steadfast love, the faithfulness of God through Israel telling them. But Israel fails to do this. Instead of enjoying God and proclaiming his glory to the world, they turn inwards. They make God's choosing them all about them. Something for them to enjoy. Looking down on the world around them. Insulating themselves and seeking their own comfort. And that's what Jesus finds when he enters the temple in our text. He walks into this massive court of the Gentiles, and he does not see the poor or the sick or the Gentiles. No, what he finds is that his people have turned this place meant for the nations into a shopping mall, into something akin to the trading floors that you find in financial markets around our country. Utter craziness, all centered around Israel's own religious and cultural enjoyment, and Jesus comes undone. After making a whip of cords, driving everyone out, he explains his righteous indignation by quoting our Old Testament text. It is written, my house shall be called a house of prayer for all the nations. What makes Jesus angry? It's not sexual immorality. He encounters a lot of that. It's not corrupt political systems. He encounters a lot of that. It's not a lack of faith and doubt. He encounters that. Now, it's not as if he's okay with these things, but whenever someone comes to Christ with these sins, they are met with incredible forbearance and kindness and mercy and love. Jesus goes off at an ingrown, self-serving, self-seeking, self-exalting faith. This is what makes Jesus angry. Finally, let's turn and look at the result of his anger. Verse 14. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. 
But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the wonderful things that he did, and the children crying out in the temple, Hosanna to the son of David, they were indignant. Why are these priests so mad? Jesus is healing people. Blind people are seeing. Lame people are walking. And they're getting mad at Jesus, the guy who is accomplishing this healing. Why? It's because the blind and the lame in this society, people with physical defects, were not allowed into the temple. They were seen as being ritually unclean. Therefore, they were unfit to be in the presence of God. So the chief priests interpret this Jesus bringing these unclean people into the temple as defiling the temple. They thought that impurity, defilement, was some sort of power, force, or contagion that threatened them from the outside. So they put up defenses and avoided defiled or unclean people constantly. But Jesus throws that whole paradigm on its head in Matthew 15, a couple chapters before our text. And he points out that these rules of purity and impurity are actually pointing to the fact that people's hearts are unclean. People's souls are unclean. And that is why we are all unfit to be in the presence of God. But here he is, Jesus, God in the flesh, neutralizing impurity and uncleanness by taking it on himself in the the court of the Gentiles in the temple. The result of Christ's anger is that those who are unclean and impure find healing in the temple and are allowed to enjoy the presence of God. Now, within just a few days of this event, which occurs at the very beginning of Holy Week, within just a few days of this event, we see the exact same dynamic of his anger and healing at play. Jesus would be delivered over to death, where he would suffer the wrath of his Father against sin, so that all of us would enjoy his cleansing. We who are unclean with sin might be allowed into the presence of God as sons and daughters. As Spurgeon wrote, he could be angry with the sin and yet never cease to be compassionate with the sinner. His was not anger which desired evil to its object. It was simply love on fire. Jesus' love was so great that it compelled him to Calvary to drink down the wrath of God that his chosen flock might be redeemed. And his anger, too, was toward that end. The righteous anger of Jesus is predominantly displayed when the lost, who he came to seek and save, are hindered from true fellowship with God. The result of Christ's anger is that the unclean are made whole so that they might enjoy the presence of God. The result of God's anger poured out on our sin upon Jesus on the cross is that all who confess their uncleanness might be welcomed into God's temple and enjoy his presence. Now this is all begging for application. Those of us who have confessed our uncleanness, our need of Christ, you are now the temple of God. This comes with implications, so let's close with a few applications. In this time of Advent, both the current season and the reality that we live in, uh, where we are awaiting for Christ to return and make all the bad things come untrue, we need to be awakened to those things that make our Savior, our Lord, angry. Those things that he is most passionate about. And as our text shows us, what makes Jesus angry? A self-serving and insulated religion. So how would we apply this? This whole thing, Hope PCA, TCPC doesn't exist for us. It does not exist for us. 
It exists for God's glory and the good of the world. The consumerism of our culture has infiltrated our churches and discipled us in how we think about church. We think that this place exists to meet my needs, my wants, my preferences, where I can be with the people that I like the best, hear the music that I most prefer, hear preaching that I connect the best with. We view it through such a consumeristic lens. But that's not how we should view church. Hope Prez exists for those people in Lexington who do not yet know the glory of God. Leslie Newbegin, uh, an incredible thinker, when speaking of how the gospel can change the world around us, says this. The world will be exposed to the illumination of the gospel when local congregations renounce an introverted concern for their own life and recognize that they exist for the sake of those who are not members as sign, instrument, and foretaste of God's redeeming grace for the whole life of society. So as churches, we must renounce this introverted concern for ourselves. When we think about our church, why we go, we should not be primarily thinking about why I enjoy this place, but because this place exists for me to bring glory to God and seek the good of my neighbor. This has implications for us personally as well, not just as a corporate body. Jesus, as we saw, he fulfilled his purposes, and now you and I are the living temple of God. Therefore, we exist for the glory of God and the good of the world around us. This means that your money, your time, your talents, your vocation, your homes, your families, all of these things are not primarily for your enjoyment, but for the good of the world around you and the glory of God. This also means that your salvation your faith that you cling to, that Christ has purchased for you with his blood, has been given to you to share, to delight in, and as C.S. Lewis said earlier, to consummate your enjoyment by sharing it. If you are struggling to enjoy your faith, to find enjoyment and delight in God right now, what if you will find some of that delight and joy in simply sharing with your neighbor or your coworker, whoever, what he has done for you? It would be so easy right now as a church living in the midst of an incredibly divided culture to find some sort of them and demonize them, isolate from them. You could be on the political or cultural right or left and find some sort of them, some sort of unclean that you would insulate from and turn inwards and uh, just join with those who are like you. And this could happen even in the midst of individual congregations as people unite around values and preferences. But Christ would be angry with this. His passion, his love, is for his glory and the good of the nations. Let us be awakened to what our Lord is passionate about this Advent season. Let's pray. Lord Jesus, uh, we love you. And Lord, we are thankful for all that you have done in the person and work of Christ Jesus. Lord, would we enjoy your kindness and your compassion and yet also become angry at that which makes you angry? Lord, would we seek your glory and the good of our neighbor? All this we ask in your name. Amen.